this very God who you believe values life, he commanded that whole people groups be slaughtered and annihilated. Did you know that? says this in the Old Testament. So we're left with a bit of a dilemma. How do I harmonize these two uh, apparently competing truths? Uh, we know of the giver of life and the value he places upon it, and yet, as I mentioned, he commanded that whole people groups at various times and places, in the Old Testament in particular, be be, be, be uh, relocated, be destroyed, be annihilated entirely. In fact, I'd like you to see of uh, an episode along those lines, and that's what we're going to discuss tonight. How could it be that the giver of life, who we believe values it, would have called uh, for its termination, the termination of life of whole people groups? It's a big ethical, theological dilemma, and we're going to try to deal with it head on tonight. We're in Numbers uh, chapter 33, and we'll finish that chapter tonight, uh, beginning in verse 50. So this is where we are, Numbers chapter 33, verse uh, 50, and here's what it says. Then uh, the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab. The 40 years of wilderness wandering are just about over. There's an encampment of the Israelites on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Plains of Moab would be located in modern-day Jordan. They can see the land of promise. They can almost reach out and touch it. It is in view. And so they're opposite Jericho right now. And God told Moses, speak to the sons of Israel, say to them, when, not if, when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. That's we know that to be the place of promise, the land of Canaan. When you do this, then, when you get there, then you shall drive out. Look at this. You shall drive out all the inhabitants. There they are. There are people there. They've lived in the land. Their homes are there. Their way of life is established there in the land of Canaan. We know them to be Canaanites. God told the Moses, uh, uh, the leader of Israel, Moses, when, not if, you're going to go, you're crossing the Jordan. When you get over there, I want you to prepare right now because this is the mandate I give you. It's not an option. I want you to drive out all of these people who have laid claim uh, to the land and it, it appears have a justifiable claim to the land. I want you to drive them all out. And not only that, I want you to destroy all their figured stones and I want you to destroy all their molten images. I want you to demolish all their high places. These are not skyscrapers. These are, these are platforms, raised platforms or uh, religious centers on naturally elevated areas, hills and so on, where the pagan gods of the Canaanites, and they had a multiplicity of them, would be worshipped. Uh, well, they wouldn't just be worshipped uh, in alternative religious ways to the ones we are familiar with. A lot of the religious practices of the ancient Canaanites were, were mingled with uh, sexual immorality of the most grotesque kind and even devolved into a child sacrifice. We just heard from two wonderful ladies who were doing everything they could to keep from, from abortion happening and children uh, terminated while in, in wombed. And here this was an ancient practice, you see, as, as part of the offering to Canaanite gods. Children were offered up in fire to gods like Molech, a Canaanite deity. 
And it says in verse 53, when you get there, take possession of the land. Well, now, wait a second. The land, the land belonged to the Canaanites. They're in it. But God, this God who you and I, I suppose, we claim to be gracious and just and good, this is very God. He said, I want you, you Israelites. I want you to take possession of it. I want you to live in it. I have given the land to you. Seems rather arbitrary for God to do such a thing, but that's what it says. Hang on here. I'm not going to end with this. I just want, I'm just sharing with you the a very real argument you're going to run into if you haven't already with regard to the legitimacy of you and I bowing before a God who we claim to be gracious and merciful, and yet who in passages like this doesn't seem to be merciful at all. And so, so God says, uh, you know, I'm going to give it to you, and you'll inherit the land by lots, and uh, your families, the larger one you give more, and the smaller you give less, and so on and so forth. You shall inherit all this according to the tribes, 12 tribes of your fathers. But, verse 55, if you do not <clears throat> drive out the inhabitants of the land, if you do not drive them out from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as a rather graphic metaphor, a splinter in your eye. Even thinking about it pains me. Does it pain you? Can you imagine? I know what it feels like to have a splinter in a finger. It's uh, painful and distressing. How about, a, how about a splinter in your eye? They will become, God said, you Israelites, if you don't do what I tell you to do, whether it makes sense or not, if you don't do what I tell you to do, if you don't drive them all out, I'll tell you what's going to happen. They'll become to you like splinters in your eyes. And not only that, like thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. So we're faced with an ethical dilemma. It is this. Many, based on passages such as this, would conclude that the God of the Bible, who naive people like you and I bow before, is a bloodthirsty God. We claim that he's merciful, compassionate, and gracious, and yet how do you square that conclusion with this kind of Old Testament passage? This is as much a part of our Bible as is everything else. We cannot strike it from the record, and so, so the argument against a loyalty to the God of the Bible, submission uh, to the God of the Bible, is that look how bloodthirsty he is. He commanded the killing of entire groups of people in the Old Testament, like the Canaanites. And so texts like this have made the God of the Bible the subject of very, very harsh criticism by opponents of Christianity. Perhaps you've run into some. For instance, uh, there was a best-selling book called The God Delusion, written by a, a well-known man named Richard Dawkins, who is uh, an atheist, in which he, uh, Richard Dawkins, refers to the God of the Old Testament as, this is a direct quote, his words, as a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. That's how Richard Dawkins refers to the God of the Bible. In other words, from Dr. Hawkins' perspective, uh, uh, God really is no different than someone like Adolf Hitler, who also was an ethnic clean, cleanser, you see. 
And then there was someone, uh, he just recently passed away, perhaps you're familiar with him, another well-known atheist, a journalist, an anti-religionist named Christopher Hitchens. Maybe some of you know about him. He just passed away recently. He's about 60 or 61 years old. I'm persuaded that Mr. Uh, Hitchens' perspective on God is entirely different now uh, than it was when he was writing his books. And, but anyway, uh, when he was here, <clears throat> Uh, he stated his conclusion that the Old Testament allows for, these are his words, indiscriminate massacre. God is behind indiscriminate massacre. Now, other critics of Christianity have leveled similar charges against God and the Bible, accusing the God of the Bible of crimes against humanity. Naive people like you and I claim that God is so good that he offered his own son uh, in an excruciating death by piercing crucifixion in order to save humanity. And yet, they find passages like this in in which it looks like that God is guilty of crimes against humanity. So what are we going to do about all those critics? Well, we're going to respond right now. That's what we're going to do. So, so let me give you a response, and you can, you can try some of the things on for size and see if you find this palatable. So here's, here's the first response. God can do anything he wants. Amen. Let's go home. We're done. Listen to me. By definition... We're not talking about your next-door neighbor, your congressman, your peer. If you refer to him as God, you dismiss God because you don't find his ways to be palatable, then he's not your God, is he? So that's an internally consistent argument. By God, by definition, you mean master and Lord. You mean higher authority. If he's a higher authority than you, then Dr. Dawkins and Dr. Hitchens and me and all the rest, he can do anything he wants to do. He can Listen to me. With regard to the real estate of the world, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And therefore, he can parcel it out to whomever he wants. If he wants to evict prior tenants, namely the Canaanites, and replace them with another group, not so hot either, the Israelites, he can do anything he wants to do. Now, if you don't like that and you're troubled with it, Argue with God if you dare. He's got the whole world in his hands. Not only can he do what he wants to do with the real estate of the world, he can do whatever he wants to do with the people who live on the real estate of the world because he is the creator. And everybody else is a creature. The creator of people can do with them and to them whatever he chooses to do. So that's response number one. Response number two. It is a wonder that he spares anybody. He distinguished us from every other ingredient in creation by making us to be in his own image. That's what the Bible says We, humans, have been created in the image of God, meaning he gave us a mind, emotions, and will, all of which he possesses. God has intellect. He has a heart, 
And he has volitional, he wills, he chooses to do things. He gave us those capacities. A rock, a tree does not have those capacities. Did you know that? I am different than any other created thing. I'm you, I, we're created in the image of God. He gave us a mind, an intellect, so that we can think about God. He gave us emotions, a heart, so that we could have affection for God. He gave us a will so that we could choose to opt for God and obey God. You know what we've done? We've used our brilliant minds, the likes of which is housed in the cranium of Dr. Hawkins, and we've used it to grow foolish in our speculations. We, use, we have used our heart and our affections to buddy up to everything but God, false gods. And we've used our will to do our own thing instead of that which Almighty God would have us do. So listen, you know what that means? That God would be justified to wipe us all out and start fresh. Listen to me. The mystery is not that God commanded the annihilation of some. The mystery is that God spares any. That's response number two. Response number three. His actions are never impulsive, as is insinuated by his critics. His critics conform God to their own image, lack of restraint, anger, moodiness, impetuousness. No way. Every activity of God, every one of his actions, all of his plans are preordained, predicted, proclaimed in advance, and characterized by his amazing patience. Listen, I can prove it to you. For over 400 years, that's not an impulsive decision. For over 400 years, God had warned the Canaanites that a time would come when, if they refused to repent of their horrific wickedness and sin, he would come and punish them for it. 400 years. I'll prove it to you. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 13. Genesis 15, 13. Let me read. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Would you like to guess what land God is speaking? That's Egypt. Egypt's in the news today, isn't it? Quite a bit. We have to pray for believers in Egypt. Anyway, God says, you're going to be in that land. You're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Round it off. It was about 430 years. But, but, but I will also judge the nation, Egypt, whom they will serve. And afterward, after this period of 400 plus years, afterward, they will come out with many possessions. That happened, didn't it, in the Exodus. As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, land of Canaan. For the iniquity of the Amorite, Canaanite, is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. 
God said that in a covenant relation with Abraham 400 years before God brought the Israelites in conquest of the land of Canaan. He gave the Canaanites 400 years. Canaan, how'd they know about this? Well, come on. News traveled fast. Are you kidding me? Do you think the Canaanites didn't know of uh, this covenant relationship between Abram and the Israelites? Do you think the power of Almighty God wasn't manifested and made known to them? Do you think they didn't hear what God did through the Israelites to Og and Sihon and all these others on the other side of the Jordan River? Oh, I can prove to you they knew. You ever hear of a lady named Rahab? You know what she is? Someone who lived in Canaan. Uh, her words are recorded for us down to this very day in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. I'll read it to you. She said, I know that the Lord has given you, she's saying to the Israelites. Rahab the Canaanite is saying to the Israelites when they entered the land, I know that the Lord has, has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We have heard. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath Rahab was converted. Others, others retained a cold, hardened heart in spite of the evidence that Elohim, the one true God, is the God. And as He redeemed and delivered Israel, He's willing to redeem and deliver any who call upon His name. So they had plenty of opportunity. God didn't just wake up on the wrong side of the bed one day. That's what you and I do. Let's not conform God to our image. God didn't get ticked off. That's what you and I do. God isn't moody. In fact, God desires for none to perish, but to all, for all to be saved. Ezekiel 18.32, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Rahab did. The others had the option and refused it. They rejected it. Response number four, folks, God has chosen to protect and preserve a particular people in order to extend his message of salvation through them to all people. So, the command to destroy all the high places in Canaan was intended to protect God's covenant people from the temptation to be compromised participate in and be rendered useless by the pagan religion of the Canaanites. 
The destruction of the Canaanites was necessary in order to preserve and protect the Israelites through whom God intended to reveal his plan of salvation to all people. So I ask you a question. How have my people done? Not good. But the, the Jew above all Jews <laughs> who emerged from Israel, Yeshua, the Lord Jesus, he has done what my people have miserably failed to do. So as to preserve the purity of a messianic line. Do you realize the Canaanites wanted to exterminate the Israelites? If so, no Jewish Messiah. No Jewish Messiah, no, no Messiah of the world. So because God intended to save all, he protected and preserved at all costs a few because they were entrusted with the missionary mandate to proclaim the excellencies and mercies of a great redeeming God. No, this was not ethnic cleansing which is the accusation foisted upon the God of the Bible. It was not ethnic cleansing uh, because, because, because God didn't target the Canaanites because they were Canaanites. He targeted them because they were unrepentant idol worshipers who would entice and snare and compromise the people of God. Listen, if the Israelites became indistinguishable from the Canaanites, then the testimony of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be compromised. If the Christians are so compromised that they're indistinguishable from the non-Christians, how is the Christ going to be recognized in us? Can you see how serious a matter it is to protect and preserve a particular people, believers today, so that all people, unbelievers, to see that there is a God in their midst who saved them and who's willing to save others as well. So Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 17 and 18 says, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hevite, the Jebusite. These are all under the umbrella of Canaanites. As the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. The Canaanites were known, uh, and this is historically verifiable, the Canaanites were known to engage in bestiality, incest, cultic prostitution, and as I mentioned, even child sacrifice by fire. When God's people become so compromised that you can't tell the difference between the saved and the unsaved, please tell me what testimony remains for those who are unsaved. So, history lesson. Response to the critics of the God of the Bible. But let's move to this in closing. What's the application for us? Did you know, as New Covenant people, we're not permitted to kill Canaanites? I don't know if you knew this. We're not allowed to wipe out people groups. It's not a strategy uh, we are permitted to take advantage of. So what's the application for us? It is this. 
we too are in quite a war, quite a battle. Our job, as it was to the ancient Israelites who failed miserably, our job is to identify and destroy, search and destroy, anything in our personal lives that will compromise our testimony as Christians. That's the application. We are to identify, searching out, and destroy anything in us which poses a, a risk of compromise, which will militate against the missionary mandate for us to be salt and light in the world. The application for us is for us to determine to rid ourselves of false gods, of idols. But wait, you say, what are you talking about? <laughs> we don't worship stone, wooden idols as did the Canaanites. That's true, because we got enough of our own. Modern day idols abound. An idol is anything we depend on in place of the one true God. That's what an idol is. So, whatever you depend on for peace, whatever you depend on for security, for provision, for guidance in life, whatever you depend on for love and for hope and for comfort and for rest, and whatever you depend on for forgiveness, whatever you depend on for self-worth, whatever you depend on, for what only the one true God can provide has become your idol. They abound today. Do I know one of the, one of the most prevalent idols today? <laughs> Is to look to the description of the God of the Bible and uh, remodel him. To make him kinder and gentler. To make him someone who would never send anyone to hell. To make him someone who doesn't even call our misbehavior sin, he accepts our diagnostic term, they're just mistakes. We just make mistakes. It is idolatry to take the God of the Bible and make him a mamby-pamby flower child whose purpose it is just to make you feel good in life. And there are big churches not far, <clears throat> who practice this form of idolatry. If you reform the God of the Bible and exchange him for an image in your own making, that is idolatry. So they don't have to be wood and stone uh, statues in order for them to be substitutes to the one true, the one true God. That's what an idol is. So am I saying that the God of the Bible wants us to depend on him alone? Yeah, I am. That's why the first commandment in Exodus 20, you read the Ten Commandments, the first commandment, do you know what it is? You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. By the way, if we obeyed the first commandment, the other nine would simply fall into place. <laughs> first things first, you shall have no other gods before me. But what's wrong? Think about this. What's wrong with worshiping the true God along with other stuff? 
other gods. That's what Israel did. Do you know Israel did not abandon Yahweh, the God of the Bible? Israel just added to her worship of Yahweh the worship of Canaanite gods. Why can't you do that? A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Why can't you just... They didn't reject the true God. They just simply took on Canaanite gods in addition. By the way, that's what you and I would be more prone to do. It's not likely that any here is going to stand up out of the blue and renounce the God of the Bible. That's unlikely for any of us. It's more likely, however, that we'll do what the Israelites did, and that is take on the gods, the idols of the world in addition to him. Worship him Wednesdays, Sundays, but depend for peace and joy and hope and well-being and self-worth. Depend on the gods of the world. That's, that's more likely. So what's wrong with all that? This is what's wrong. The God of the Bible says, it's pretty clear, you shall have no other gods before me. So why does he, why is he so exclusive? Why, why does he... Why does he demand exclusive worship? He must be very insecure, don't you think so? No, not at all. He loves us. And he knows our hearts can never be satisfied by any God but him. He knows our hearts can never be satisfied by the false gods and idols of the world which we try to carry around when all the time the true God says, but I stand ready to carry you around. He loves us too much to allow us to try to find satisfaction in any place but in our relationship with him. In fact, our relationship with God is just like marriage. Did you know that? That's why we're called the bride of Christ. It's just like marriage. We are his bride. Because he loves his bride so much, he's not willing to share us, you see? You know how good that is, that he's not willing to share us? It must mean he really loves us. That very commandment, you shall have no partners but me, elevates our worth. Think about it. The most high God wants us all for himself. The creator loves us so much. He wants us for himself. That's fantastic. So you and I cannot continue on as Christians with two thrones in our heart. Can't do it. We can't worship the true God part of the time and yet be depending on other gods the rest of the time because that kind of inconsistent that conflict is going to disrupt our lives terribly. It's going to make us miserable, and you know this may be true of you. See the quick fix, the porn- pornography fix? It's temporary gratification, but it sets up a throne in competition to God. And you're miserable if you're into that. The gambling fix is a temporary gratification, but it's a second throne in your life. Whatever, whatever the deal is of the, of the day, the drug thing, the alcohol thing. But, uh, you know, these are all the gods of the, of the, of the, of the, of the world, you know, the, the gurus of the world, the, uh, you know, the TV, the TV prophets and what, whatever it is, you know, I, it makes you divided. It makes you so terribly miserable. In fact, God said this to Israel. I remind you what it says, verse 55. If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, it'll come about those whom you let remain will become as splinters 
in your eyes and thorns in your side. They will trouble you in the land which you live. And so here's the application for us folks. We've got, as Christians, we're redeemed, but we could be miserable. And we could be rendered impotent with regard to the missionary mandate to be salt and light in the world. If we're compromised by, you know, uh, uh, two thrones in, in, in our heart, we, we, we just forfeit our testimony to those who now more than ever before need to see the reality of Christ Jesus in us and hear of him uh, uh, through us. So here's the application. We've got to remove the splinters and the thorns in our lives. And uh, that, 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 that's an act of the will. That's an act. See, Moses gave a solemn warning to those ancient Israelites. He said, if you fail to drive out the Canaanites, then those pagan people will continually harass you. And those words turned out to be prophetically true and are characteristic of Israel's problems in the land of Israel down to this very day. To this day, Israel's enemies have been like splinters in her eye and thorns in her side. Israel, given the land, irrevocably, unconditionally, and never, ever having been able to enjoy it fully. It's like a Christian, given the promise of salvation through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, irrevocably and unconditionally, and yet not coming into full enjoyment of the blessings of salvation. You see the parallel? So the application for us, Israel failed, let's not. The application for us is to remove the splinters and the thorns. You see, God loves us, and he wants what's best for us, and he is what's best for us. He is what, the gods of the world cannot carry hope of a, in, in the political system, I didn't say abandon it. I did not. Don't, don't misunderstand. I just say undo hope in it is idolatry. Hope in vocation is surely good to try to get a good job. Hope in it. Uh, w- w- that excludes the God of all hope. That's idolatry. A selfish ambition to climb the ladder, corporate or otherwise. It's a very good thing. Be the best you can for sure. But to the extent that it becomes depended on in place of Almighty God, that, you know, that's idolatry. Money, that's a good thing to have. It's, it's nice to function with money. By the way, you better hang on to it before it gets taken away. I watched TV last night, and it's... Anyway, um, <clears throat> money's a good thing, but the love of it, instead of the love of Almighty God, who is our providers, that becomes, that becomes idolatry. To have things is a permissible deal. God permits it. To own a home, the American dream, and maybe to have a vehicle or something. These are okay. Don't misunderstand. But to be possessed by the possessions, you see, that becomes, that becomes, that, that, that becomes idolatry. Those are the thorns in the side. Those are splinters in the eye. And, the, and, the, and, and what happened with Israel uh, it was, it was that she was neutralized. She, 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 couldn't, she couldn't win the Canaanites to the faith because the Canaanites saw no vibrant faith in the Israelites. You see it? Sometimes we're not, we're not winning the people around us to the faith because the people around us don't see any distinctive difference. 
We're not living life on a, on a higher plane. We're, we're compromised. You see what I mean? So God doesn't hate us. He, he really loves us. He will not withdraw our salvation, but we can forfeit the joys of it, the joy of salvation. You see what I mean? So the application is, uh, are, can you see any splinters or the thorns? Get, get rid of them. Get, 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 get rid of them. God loves you. He wants what's best for you. He wants you to be fully dependent on him. Can you imagine the Most High God invites our full and total dependence on him? He's not bothered by it. He invites it. He doesn't want us leaning on or into anything else. He can't carry us. They're false gods. He can carry us. He wants us to depend on him. He proved his love for us. He died for us. He redeemed us. He, he has plans for us. He has a place for us. It's called, it's called heaven. He calls us his we are his. He is our God. He's not willing. Our God is not willing to share us with false gods. So, so whatever you, I are now depending on for those things which only the true God can provide, those things have become, it's very subtle sometimes. Sometimes it happens so quick, it's imperceptible. Those things have become our gods. So I want to invite you just for a moment. Could you bow your heads and Close your eyes. I, I'm going to go quiet here just for a second so you can hear your heart moved by the Holy Spirit speak to you. Um, would you think about what we've been talking about? Go on a search and destroy mission right now. Ask God, the Holy Spirit, to search out your heart. Has he been crowded out by false gods? things you're depending on in place of or in addition to him. Can you think of anything in particular? Ask God to help you to name it. If you name it, you can come against it. <laughs> As God told the Israelites, come against the Canaanites, remove them. Ask God to help you identify what needs to be removed from your life. Isn't it so wonderful? If you're a Christian, the penalty of your sin has been paid. God is helping us in dealing with the power of sin. Praise him one day. They won't even be the presence of sin. <laughs> That's good. You're secure. Israel's right to the land cannot be forfeited. Your salvation cannot be forfeited. But you can be compromised as an ambassador for Christ. The world needs you. The world needs to see the God who transformed you, who saved you, who lives in you. Other stuff has to, has to be removed. Ask God, ask the Holy Spirit, oh God, convict me. Who have I invited? What have I invited in? What have I given my heart to? What has squeezed you out? Is there another throne other than the one on which you reside in my heart? Oh God, show me now and put it in me to make a decision in this place on this day to go to war against that false god, against that idol. Oh, God, give me victory right now. Spend some time. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us, each who has accepted you as Savior from sin. That has made such a difference. No going back. Thank you for the place of promise, which is ours, heaven. 
But we're in the journey now, and we want to do better at it than Israel did and is. We as a covenant people, in a bond like unto marriage with you, Lord, I wonder if we've committed a kind of spiritual adultery from time to time, lending our heart and affections to false gods. You're not angry with us, you love us. Free us of it so that your unquenched Holy Spirit would loudly proclaim through us, be reconciled to the God in us. You, Lord Jesus, our Lord and Savior, thank you for your interest in saving many, many more, even through ones such as us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.